When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started back in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the Think Again podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and unpredictable ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here expecting to discuss. I'm very, very happy to be here today with writer and media polymath Kurt Anderson. Kurt is the New York Times bestselling author of the novels Heyday, Turn of the Century, and True Believers, and he's the host and co-creator of the Peabody award-winning public radio show Studio 360. Kurt's latest book, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, is a 500-year history of a different kind of American exceptionalism. Welcome to Think Again, Kurt. Happy to be here. So you are making, you sir, are making a very bold claim in this, in this thoroughly researched and vivid account of zaniness in America, which is that we, we are exceptional among the nations of the world in, uh, in our tenuous grasp on reality. Fair enough. Can, that's a, that's can a we good talk discussion. about that? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, we are. And, and, and again, not unique in everything. Uh, that I talk about in this book is not un- almost everything is not unique to America, but in the rich world, in the developed world, we are different. We are an outlier. We are weird, and and we're, it's not just that we got weird in 2016 or 2000 right. or even 1969. It's been a long time coming, as I realized when I started thinking about and researching this book. It's we we have a long history of insisting passionately insisting that we can believe the untrue and we will believe the untrue sometimes that's where it's worked out well i mean right. the, the fact that we had that believe the impossible dream turn yourself into anybody you want create this commune create utah whatever it is right. uh, but it was always in in a kind of dynamic balance with the the reality based world and the establishment and people saying, no, that's not true. Yeah, go ahead, believe it if you want it, but that's not true. And everybody pretty much agreed. So we go from, and again, and also not that how you were born or is everything, but we were born as a, as, a, as the new American nation, natives aside, uh, by people who either, on the one hand started a, a Christian theocracy that they hoped to be a utopia in preparation for their second coming imminently. Right in New England, and a bunch of people in Virginia who, having never been here, were nevertheless absolutely persuaded that there was going to be plenty of gold and they could all get rich overnight, and they kept looking for it as they died and kept coming and kept hoping for 20 years or more before they decided, eh, we didn't, we didn't find any gold, so let's grow tobacco. So that's how we started, and, and our constitution and our national character in so many ways just insisted, codified, that we don't have to pay attention to the man. We don't have to pay attention to the elite. We, we can believe what we want by God. 
And, and so, as I say, for centuries, that was in a kind of healthy, dynamic equilibrium with, with the reality checks laid uh, on top of that, until it kind of, that, that equilibrium and that, the, the apparatus that kept the hogwash out of the mainstream right. went to, started going kerplooey, went kerplooey in a big way. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop you there because I, I do wanna come back to the 60s and uh -huh. your take on yeah. that and everything yeah. that followed. But I want to stick with the origins for a minute, sure. um, which is, you know, like, so So it begins, I guess, with this idea of the new world and maybe then continues with the Western frontier and the fact that there is basically endless new world to explore for some period of time. Right. Yeah? No, I mean, to, to the English uh, who, who, who came here, threw over their lives, left civilization to come here for the first hundred years right. because they either depending on what fantasy they were committed to believing. Um, yeah, that, that kept recapitulating itself. There was always a frontier. It was 100 miles away, and then it was another 100 miles away, and then it was 1,000 miles away, and, and then there's gold! Actually, finally, 200-odd years into <laughs> right, it, right, right. They, they find gold in California. So the dream could stay alive. And, and once the, the, our, our foundings, the, the first century was done and, and, and religious tolerance was allowed and it wasn't just the Puritans in charge and so forth, uh, what that allowed for, it allowed for all kinds of other extravagant, often freakish religions and religionists to set up shop wherever right. they wanted. And again, that's not a bad thing and that's okay. Um, but that became part of the American way is, is that you can set up your own freakish religion, right. you, can, you can sell this quack medicine or devices, you can be P.T. Barnum and start your, your, the, the, this extraordinary thing called the American Museum and put on display real artifacts and completely fictional artifacts <laughs> right. like a mermaid or, or, or a live woman who claims to be 161 and was George Washington's nanny. So, or you can start these cheap newspapers called the Penny Press, one of which the New York Sun uh, published this extraordinary six-part series in a week. Oh, about the moon. You're talking about the That the, the moon was inhabited moon. Yeah. by Batman and unicorns and, and had a whole civilization. And everybody believed it. Everybody believed yeah, it. Yeah, this and, was, you say, 1835. 1835. Yeah, yeah, it was an extraordinary thing. And, and, and it was really part of, <laughs> so much of the modern age really got started in the 1830s and 40s. That, uh, and, and which people believed, which respectable people believed. And even though it was a hoax, it wasn't even like wrong, it was right, a hoax. Right. Uh, three years afterwards, uh, a writer said, people in this city, meaning New York, still believe this. They, 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 they won't give it up this fake news. Now that's really interesting to me though because like, so it's one thing, I think it's one thing to create a religious group or create a subculture and really believe that you are pursuing some kind of dream and that it's yes. up to us in a sense to author our own destiny. Right. It's another thing to sell complete fiction as reality right. and just shamelessly and boldly. It, it, that, that doesn't seem to happen maybe so much all over the it, world. It really yeah. doesn't. And again, a, a price of our liberty and, and extreme liberty and freedom is that. Is right. that charlatans and delusional people can sell their stuff to right. all of us. Right. And we can buy it, buyer beware. I mean, and, and again, I, I'm not saying I'm just saying that's true, and we are extreme in this way, and kept in control 
and not as the, not when it isn't overwhelming the popular understanding of reality, okay, we can live with that. We're not Canada. We're not, we're not Denmark. Right. Okay, we can be a little nutty. But it is different, and that that, that is allowed. And again, um, at that time, so many things like that were being invented in America by Americans. The, around almost exactly the same time, in the 1840 presidential election, William Henry Harrison was this guy, born rich, mm -hmm. uh, was the nominee of the, of the elite's Whig party. They decided to, no, we need to rebrand him. Advertising literally had just become a, an, adver, uh, an industry. Right. We're gonna rebrand this, this, this <laughs> rich guy, you know, I mean, the George W. Bush of his time maybe, right. as a re populist, regular guy. And he doesn't wear ruffled shirts, and he's not part of the elite, and, and he grew up in a log cabin, and, and we're gonna and we're gonna create all these log cabin trinkets and 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 build full-scale log cabins on the streets of the cities as part of our campaign events and market him and write songs about him. This had never been done. This was a new thing in right. politics uh, that naturally Americans invented. He won by a landslide, beating a guy who was actually of humble origins, Martin Van Buren, but like, oh, he has this fancy rich guy's name, Van Buren, and he's the incumbent. And, he, and, and therefore, in, in that way that we're now very familiar with, with political spin, the opposite of the truth resulted in this great political achievement. And so, and, and the patent medicine industry grew like crazy at the same time, it was really, yeah, yeah. and of course we had suddenly the telegraph, and we suddenly had photography, and we suddenly had railroads that were like magic, things, and, and that, that moment, that middle of the 19th century moment, that was one of, those, one of those milestones in this history I write that where I think like, whoa, that really put us on this path. It, it's funny because the way that, the way that you're, you're, you even began this, I feel, I feel like you're anticipating or already responding in some sense to some of the maybe wounded American backlash to, to some of the things that you're saying, which is, you know, reading the book, I thought, I found myself thinking constantly like, oh yeah, okay, yes, this is the crazy land that I know. And at the same time thinking, well, you know, this is also the outpouring of energy. This is the outpouring of creativity. This is the dreaming that actually makes dreams a reality right. kind of thing. And, and I guess what you're saying is that that has consequences both great and terrible like that, that that's true and it's not really just anticipating the the, the counter arguments I, I believe that it is a double-edged sword and it's just that the unfortunate and and more and more terrible edge of that sword has been ignored right and I'm connecting these these kind of dots that seem disparate to try to give people a sense of a kind of template for viewing a lot of things. It's not just, oh, I think religion, I think, I think Pentecostals are crazy. Or it's not just, oh, right. anti-vaccine people. Oh, that, there's, a, there's a web of American-ism that connects a lot of these uh, areas. And, and you argue, and this was another sort of sacred cow that I feel like, you know, I, I, this, this felt personal to me. Like, I love the 60s. I love so much of what came out of the 60s, as I'm sure you do, actually, yeah. culturally. But, you know, you make a fairly convincing case, a very convincing case that, that that time period unleashed a kind of, like, like, I don't know, kind of took this to the next level in terms of solipsistic fantasizing about living whatever reality you want to. Exactly but. right. I, I have nothing to add, almost nothing to add. <laughs> you, you put it in a, in a nutshell. That's, no, that's right. I, I, 
I love the 60s. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, the 60s were fun t- for uh, being, you know, I was, you know, 6 to 16 in the 1960s. Great time to be a kid. Great time for progress on many fronts. Obviously civil rights. Obviously skepticism of the establishment. But in, in so many ways, it, it did, not just in the, oh man, find your own truth, make your own reality, dude, way, which was part of it, that seeped into the culture and the American mindset generally, but also uh, it is when simultaneously, not just as a backlash to the counterculture, that, oh, right. that Christianity went over the top mad in, in a way that, uh, you know, in America it had always been a little nuttier than in the rest of Christendom. Alexis de Tocqueville talked about that in 1835. But we, we you know, it had become more and more reasonable and, and, and you know, when I was growing up, I mean, uh, Christianity did not seem nutty to me. People went to church and had their beliefs and did their practice and listened to sermons and all, all good. Right. And, and then in the 60s, uh, <laughs> you know, as the Woodstock generation was, was happening and being thus named, the same, the, 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 the I don't have to pay attention to reality and, and my belief in supernatural happening right now in front of me this Sunday exploded as well. Uh, and, and then on campuses, and in, in the academy, uh, suddenly professors and, and scholars and academics were saying, no, 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 you can't say that science and reason are superior to what tribes people in Sonora, Mexico, or, or, or West Africa believe, it's all the same thing. Right. It's all just, there's just different depictions of reality, and they're all equally valid. That became a big kind of piece of intellectual orthodoxy. that You could not distinguish between the true and the false, the primitive and the modern. And, and so all that happened in the 60s. And yes, it's hard for, for people who feel like, oh, no, the 60s were the greatest. That was, yeah, that, that's, you know, the revolution happened or almost happened. And, uh, I get that. Right. And that's not untrue. But let's not ignore this whole other set of, of headwaters uh, that, that started in the 60s that, you know, have flowed down and given us Donald Trump. Fox News, Donald yeah. Trump, et cetera. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, so I would have been inclined previously, like, I mean, you're, you're putting a very specific framework on this. I would have been inclined previously to say, okay, well, you know, in a sense, I mean, obviously the f- cultural forces are slightly different, but very different, but, but you could make an analogy between what happened with the Romantic movement in England as a backlash to, you know, the sober reason that preceded it, uh, or that was going on concurrently and the Industrial Revolution and so on. And you can say, well, the 60s, it was the same kind of explosion, right? And so naturally, then you're going to get sort of further extreme reactionary responses on the right because, you know, in response to the, but this is of a different kind, I feel like you're saying. Well, I I think it's, I mean, I wasn't alive in 1810, so right, I can't right, tell right, you. Right, right. But, but, but among other things, it, it scaled differently. I mean, yes, there was a romantic movement, but you know, I, there probably weren't millions of people in England who 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 considered themselves John Keats. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, so yeah, yeah, so yeah. The, the the scale that was possible in the modern media okay. age right. in the 1960s made it a different thing. Maybe the the centripetal forces at work in society at the time in America fighting the war in Vietnam, 
sex much more easily uh, done, both right. in terms of cultural norms, in terms of birth control, and, and so many other things. This, this giant generation, the baby boom generation, uh, television as part of this uh, way, the infrastructure that allows the, this thing to scale, made it a bigger explosion. And, and it wasn't just this intellectual thing of, oh, Isaac Newton has, has and, and the scientists are making the rainbow, uh, unweaving the rainbow. Uh, right. That, that, that was just a, a kind of aesthetic, oh, I, I'm going to be romantic. This was a more, a more visceral and all-encompassing reaction. And you, you did, it on, the, on, the, on the strictly uh, extreme Christian religion side, had in America this exceptional tendency from the get-go that had been tamped down over the, over the centuries by as denominations grew larger and became more establishment, but then new hot denominations would, would, would spring up. But it had, that, was an, that was really a defining American thing, that, that, that will to believe in the fantastical and the amazing and the magic. Both the extreme orthodoxy on the one hand yeah. and also the, the, mis the uniquely American forms of mysticism. Yeah, and, and orthodoxy, it, you know, you can call it orthodoxy, but, but as, as Harold Bloom and other scholars have said, it was actually, it was heretical. It was not orthodox at all. It was. Can we uh, say heretical orthodoxy? I mean, like uh, yeah, hewing, hewing to very, yeah. very, very rigidly to very far out views. Yes, yeah, to like, either, either very literalist about the Bible, Genesis, every word right. is true. There's no such thing as evolution. That, which just, again, it astonishes me that in this day and age, uh, a third of Americans, <laughs> at, with absolute conviction, no ambivalence, believe that human beings were created in our present form 6,000 years ago. Well, that's unlike any other uh, population in the developed world, and much of the lesser developed world, right. I might add. So, right, we would have thought there was an arc of history yeah. that had kind of erased, you know, that, that, that just inevitably erased that right. after Darwin and after, you know. Right, yeah. and, every, and that's what, you know, the men of the, the people of the Enlightenment believed, is <laughs> all reason would triumph. And, and, you know, two steps forward, one step back, it seemed like it was doing that for a couple of centuries. You know, I grew up at, during what turns out to be the end of the time when, in the 20th century, where people thought, oh, yeah, those holy rollers, they're going away. Oh, those medical quackery, we no longer believe that stuff. And then suddenly, uh, starting 40 years ago, 50 years ago, that great triumph of reason uh, was turned back. Right, right, right. I heard, I heard you on Charlie Rose, and he was like, don't you think there will be some kind of pragmatic corrective to this? And, yeah. But you don't, really. Or that is to say, what you're, what you're viewing is that we have arrived at a point of kind of like, you know, if not maximum bonkers, at yeah. least irrevocable bonkers. Yeah, well, yeah. and the hopeful yeah. version would be peak bonkers. <laughs> and, and, and now it may be declined somewhere, right. or it just doesn't get, go any further. Right. Um, uh, well, and, and you know, I, I, I've been working on this book and finished this book, really, uh, the, the first draft of this book, before Donald Trump was, was the nominee, or let alone president. And so he, he embodies, weirdly, every one of my major themes of how we got here, which was, in a certain sense, gratifying. Grimly, but, grimly satisfying. And so, so I, <laughs> I, I think about alter, the alternative history. He could have easily not won. He only won by 100,000 popular votes uh, in the right places. What if he hadn't? 
Well, I, I mean, uh, people might, pop, no doubt, would not be paying as much attention to this book as they are if he hadn't. <laughs> but the state of play, as I describe it, would be the same. The history would be the same. The, the passionate belief in the false or the, or the disregard for truth or falsity would be the same. So, so there's that. So right. we are where we are, and that's the troubling and pessimistic side. On the other hand, we did elect Donald Trump. And, and maybe, we'll see, let's reconvene in three years. <laughs> maybe it will go, he will be enough of an example of the, the uh, end of, of reality-based understandings of the world, uh, of, a, of a counterexample and a cautionary tale that uh, some, some large, frac- some fraction of Americans in the middle, let's say, who right. maybe voted for him, don't hate him, whatever, but will go like, woo. This is a problem. This guy who doesn't care about whether he, what he says is a fantasy or not, or believes this crazy conspiracy theory, or is truth false doesn't matter. Maybe there will be a chastening reaction to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, again, I think that some large fraction, and I don't know what that fraction is. We'll find out. In the particular case of Donald Trump, twenty-five percent of Americans will never ever. Uh, stop believing. Yeah, and, and, and so, so I know I, I am I am not, you know I'm not packing my bags and and moving to uh, Toronto or anything. But I am by nature a kind of a more hopeful than not person, more optimistic than not person. I'm an American after all, but I, I find it hard to say. But it's all going to work out fine. I, I'm not entirely sure it is all going to work out fine. Yeah, no, I was going to say that I think that there's a kind of there's a form of delusional pragmatism that can exist as well, which you felt, you know, the left, myself included, reeling after this, after this election, going, you know, because we'd all just been like, surely it cannot happen. Surely right. it's impossible. Never. Right. right? I mean, just that total blindness to what was apparently a very real yeah. thing forever in America. Uh, no, know? that's it. I mean, and, and that's not, not the main point of this book, but I think it's an important point of this book is, is that it wasn't created by Donald Trump in the last two years. Yeah. You know, he, he, what he did in so many ways, in some instinctual genius ways, is take advantage of this, of, of this 500 year history, and especially of this last 30, 40 year history of America. He, he was talking about running for president for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was always a joke, and nobody took him seriously, and why should they? I think, again, in his, Lizard brain, instinctual <laughs> genius. He understood that no, now is the time when when I can actually do it. Maybe I won't win, but this this, you know, it makes sense now. Show business and politics are totally merged, and and people believe whatever they want. And look, I've I've gone for a few years telling this story about Obama being born in Africa. And I get on TV and it's taken off. I mean, he understood that the I, moment had come. I think he's very much a P.T. Barnum. I mean, I, you know, I, I, like in his, I'm not a fan of the show that he's putting together, but I think he has a showman's instincts for just like, if I throw this out there, yes. you know, the freak show, how, yes. it, how it operates. Yes, the Ten like, Ring Circus. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. He is a showman. And, and, and again, that is a very uh, American tradition. You mentioned P.T. Barnum, and I have, I, I talk a lot about uh, P.T. Barnum yep. in the book, who is an amazing character, and in a sense, and far more lovable, I think, than Donald Trump, even though he too had a political career between the two halves of his show business career. 
But he winked. He understood that eh, these are fibs, this is humbug, but like, eh, the people like it. I mean, maybe privately, Donald Trump says to Ivanka, hey, look at these fools. Right. They're, hey, they're falling for it. We can't be sure. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, there is that, that showman tradition. Um, and again, in a very different way, but not a totally different way, Ronald Reagan was such an effective president because of his actor instincts and his showbiz right. instincts. This is different. This is a, it's a different character. It is, you know, triumph the insult dog as, as president. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it, that's definitely part of it. And, and it only goes so far. I mean, Ronald Reagan was brilliant because he took the, the, some ideal, platonic ideal of the president and what he should be like and cheerful and optimistic that he'd taken from movies and whatever, right. and actual presidents maybe. I don't know. But that was a, an existing character, and he played it really well. Whereas Donald Trump, this is not any... Uh, presidential character outside of a idiocracy that that we've ever <laughs> we've ever seen or imagined, and the problem is because he's making it up as he goes along, and and it's so new and strange and improvised, he doesn't know what to do next. You know, he he it worked great getting elected, but like, how do you do this being president? Because then you have to act, actually do things and and make laws and respond to North Korea, and that's the problem. Is is the show? still interesting, fascinating, dreadful, amazing to watch. The show, at a certain point, without you know, attaching it to the actual machinery of governance, is not going to satisfy people. Yeah, well, and it has very real consequences. And that's, you know, there's an, there's an undertone or maybe an overtone sometimes in your book that I feel a very real anger. You know, you talk about you categorize a group of people as the squishies, like basically well-meaning people who make everything worse by being tolerant of, of this kind of ambiguity around reality. And there, you, you seem very angry about some of the real consequences. I, of that. I, I am. Yeah. I, 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 I w probably wouldn't have written the book <laughs> if, 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 I didn't, if there wasn't some real anger. If it had just been like, oh, look, right. Americans are nutty. They've always been nutty. If it hadn't, you know, it's, it's a, and in that sense, it's a book I've been thinking about or, or a set of ideas I've been thinking about a long time. But it's really been in the last decade where, where it isn't just, oh, Americans are wacky, but there's this dangerous, unhinged quality that is having real consequences in the world, whether it's various kinds of science denial or, right. or, or, or whatever, that it has made me angry. And, yes, people I know, people who run cable channels, people who run... Publishers have been complicit in, in giving venues to this kind of madness, this kind of blurring of fiction and reality, and uh, calling it out, and I think in a pretty fair way, I yeah. hope, will do maybe it's small, in addition to giving people uh, a kind of coherence to their despair, um, um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, well, the good news is, uh, it's not. It's not just Trump. The the the, the bad news is it, it's been around forever, and we can't get rid of it. Or or maybe that's the good news. I've had people react both ways. Right. But but yeah, there is a kind of squishiness, which is interesting, given that part of Donald Trump's appeal is I'm against political correctness. I hate PC, which of course is saying I hate a certain kind of squishiness. I hate a certain kind of oh, like no, you can't say that. You can't. You know, so so right, right. yet it is it is also the same squishies who have allowed, enabled the 
the fantasy land that gave us Donald Trump to, to emerge. I mean, that squishiness, it's, yeah, it's, it's essentially a modern form of the lit, live and let live idea, which presumably the country was founded right. on, right? Although the Puritans weren't terribly live and let live, but the idea was freedom for each person to be right. themselves. Well, right. right. Yeah. And, and it's, again, it's, it's, it's live and let live is one thing until as Thomas Jefferson said, they, they pick your pocket or break right, your leg. Right. And, and I think the 1920s are an interesting counterexample. That was a living, God knows, roaring 20s, live and let live, let anything happen. Uh, I, I have a whole chapter about the, the monkey trial, the Scopes trial right. in Tennessee, and, and especially H.L. Mencken's reporting on it, which is the, is the writing and reporting that made him super famous and we, that we remember today. What, how Mencken covered it, but also how the New York Times covered it, and how Time Magazine, brand new Time Magazine covered it, and how the, all of the mainstream media covered it was, yeah, live and let live, but these people are nuts and <laughs> freaks, and, and let's ridicule them and expose them for what they are. So, uh, the, the, which wouldn't have happened and didn't happen 50 years later and 80 years later. That's the squishiness. Is like, eh, no, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. But as you know, as, as Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, and I quote repeatedly in the <laughs> right. book, you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. And, and way, way too many Americans now uh, feel entitled to their own facts. Yeah, yeah. And the question is, when do people feel? When do people understand that they're that you know the fundamental tenets of the reality that you know of their of reality are being threatened, and it's time to draw battle yeah. lines. So well, can, exactly, and and, and and battle lines. I mean, battle lines in the public sphere certainly. Are I mean, real. around like teaching evolution. Exactly. In schools, for exactly. Example, like, no. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when you have, I mean, thank God there are still heroic gatekeepers <laughs> like the federal judges appointed by Repu the Republican federal judges who have said in important, repeated decisions, no, this intelligent design is creationism that you're trying to teach. You can't have that in the public schools. Yeah. So it's, we're, we're not, I mean, I, I, look, I look hopefully in, at those instances of individuals and cases where um, the gates are still being kept and, and uh, right. reality is still being maintained. And, and, uh, and there are enough of them to, to make me not entirely uh, despair. Yeah, fingers crossed. Maybe, yeah, exactly. Maybe the Supreme Court is the last bastion, depending on what happens in the next couple of years. Yeah. Uh, so that brings us to the second part of the show, where we're going to watch a couple of quick surprise clips okay. from Big Things Archives okay. and just see where they take us. Okay. Right? I have not seen them either, so they're okay. unknown, unbeknownst to me. Um, okay, let's see what this is. Bo Lotto, who's a neuroscientist, and it's called How Diversity Melts Away Our Biases and Technology is the Great Equalizer. If the process of seeing differently is the process of first and foremost having awareness of the fact that everything you do has an assumption, figure out what those are, and by the way, the best person to reveal your own assumptions to you is not yourself, it's usually someone else. Hence the power of diversity the importance of diversity, because not only does that diversity reveal your own assumptions to you, but it can also complexify your assumptions. Because we know from complex systems theory that the best solution is most likely to exist within a complex search space, simply because of statistics. So whereas a simple search space is more adaptable, it's more easily to adapt, 
is less likely to contain the best solution. So what we really want is a diversity of possibilities, a diversity of assumptions. So one of the best ways to diversify, complexify your search space, your assumptions, is through experience. And one of the great ways to do that is actually through technology. So we think about technology, and most of our technologies are good technologies. But what defines a great technology? What is a transformative technology? The good technologies are the ones that enable us to do what we can already do faster, easier, more efficient. And that's because so much of our society focuses on efficiency. It's about maximizing performance. Right? We're great engineers, but we're crap philosophers. Right? We're very good at making things more efficient. But that's only one side of innovation. We also need the other side of innovation, which is creativity. It's postmodern motherhood and apple pie. Nothing, <laughs> no, I don't disagree. Diversity is great. Uh, expanding your search space is great. Uh, technology as a great equalizer, unquestionably true. But again, having been immersed in, in my, the world and idea and vision of American history that I've been in, I, I see all the downsides of what he is positing as entirely good. I see that the great equalizer of technology in the case of digital technology and the internet is every believer, and I've been talking to some of them uh, as, I, <laughs> as this book has come out, in say, the 9-11 attacks being an inside job, has their vast fact and pseudo fact based arguments, thanks to the internet, on, on why it was an inside job and make claims for their, their untrue conspiracy theories that sound that could vary like this, is that I can now see this, I have the ability, as I never did before, back when it was just three news channels and a couple of newspapers, I have the ability to find the truth. Well, in the right hands, great. Mm -hmm. but, but, but what it also privileges and enables is, is all these falsehoods and just uh, uh, the nature of search itself, and the way search was designed, privileges the, the exciting, which is often the untrue over the true, in terms of when you look up right. extraterrestrials sure. on Earth. Um, so that's what I think of. Again, I, he's, he's right, just as all, all of these instincts in moderation have been great for America, but let's look at, at how they come out badly. Now, what's the solution? To not innovate, not have technology, not have diversity? No, it isn't. And again, when he talks about diversity, who can be against diversity of experience and background and opinion and everything else? But uh, carried to an extreme, as I believe it right. has been in our squishy tolerance for nonsense, it, it, it becomes problematic. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I guess the elephant in, in the room is a way, you know, in a sense, like, you're talking a great, you know, about fantasy and you're outlining very specifically what, you know, a lot of the fantastical ways that we think and we live. And, and there are certain things I can point to and say, well, that is more or less objective reality, right? I mean, if I bang my hand right. on the wall, right, it hurts and yours too, right? Yeah. That said, and the excesses, the extreme excesses of postmodernism aside, we have learned some things that call into question some of our older certainties about like objective views of reality. That is to say, like... You mean uh, physics is so weird it now seems like magic? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and also I'm thinking of 
I'm thinking of cognitive science and you know Amos Tversky and uh, and Kahneman and the and the biases that we know. Yes, you know, sure. so we've we've course, learned in some course. very fundamental ways to distrust. Yeah any idea of objective reality. And so then, so then, I mean, it's such a broad question, but the question that comes up is like, so what do we mean by the reality that people are denying, you know? Right, well, we can, we can, we can, we can talk, have a symposium and talk about this for days and weeks. Of course. But uh, I, I think, first of all, from Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions to Kahneman to, to, to all, and in physics, in theoretical physics, all of the challenges of objective reality are fascinating and <laughs> true as far as they go. I will say when they, when they filter into the, the sort of popular consciousness in their vulgar way, they become problematic, probably. But I, I will also say that it, it's a problem when it, it, it fuels the idea that science isn't real. And, and that kind of epistemological relativism that, oh, no, whatever I want to believe is as true as whatever anybody else believes right. or finds. That's the problem. Where I find it tricky is in the, you know, sociological realm when it comes to kind of cultural experience, right? right. And people are coming and saying, well, you simply don't know my cultural experience. Yeah. And as we are now dealing, you know, as we are now seeing with kind of the conversation around gender identity as yeah. well, and all of that being problematized, and it seems like there is some good in that, in a sense, in that we should be hearing from different people what their experience is, and not necessarily sure locking them into specific. Sure, no, you know, boxes and and and, and, and <laughs> again, I, I I love motherhood and I love apple pie, <laughs> okay. um, so, right. but right. but I've also had. Uh, fairly ferocious arguments with my, my children, uh, my daughters, about some of these issues. And so to me, it's a question of, of moderation, of reasonableness. And again, hearing the voices and legitimizing the voices of the, of the unheard, sure, great. If it's about, you know, the way you live or the way you think of yourself, fine. But when that bleeds over, as I think it does, into, uh, no, I, I, I still believe that vaccines cause autism, or no, no, I still believe that there's no such thing as global warming. Right. It's, a, it's of a piece, it is. And, 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 and uh, you know, we can't, have, we can't have Richard Dawkins in charge of the world and telling us what's <laughs> true or what's not, and, but we can't have the pendulum at the other end and like anything goes. The problem is that our pendulum has, has, has swung too far over to that, that anything goes side. No, I agree with that. I mean, I you know, the, the, I guess the problem is when, when these conversations about the nature of reality that belong that are, belong in the realm of sort of sociology and psychology bleed over into other realms, and so then science gets politicized and so on. That no, that's that's absolutely true. No, and let, so let's again as a practical matter because I try to be a practical person. Let's let's limit our real concern to the fantasies underlying our bizarre unwillingness to regulate guns. Uh, talk, let's only talk about the practical effects of not believe, believing the, either that genetically modified foods are going to kill us or that vaccines are going to give our kids autism. Let's, let's keep to the policy realms because it's a, it's a different, the, the, the nature of, I mean, those are, those are falsifiable provable to the degree science can prove or falsify anything, pieces of reality. 
Uh, now, I want to call myself genderqueer, or I want to call myself this or that, or X or Y or Z, eh, go crazy. I mean, it doesn't, right. it, you know, it doesn't affect me. We, you and I may disagree about the degree to which that's valuable or an important focus of the whole society or culture, but right. eh. Okay. Um, on a very different tack, actually, in a sense, a non sequitur, but not. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about your, you write novels. You've been writing novels for many years now. 20. And how do you think about fantasy in that realm? Like, fantasy is obviously a big part of your life. You make stuff up. I so, do. Yeah. I do. So, I do. So, yeah, how does that, like, you know, in, in relation to... Is it just like, okay, well, that's playtime, that's a book. Well, you know? I mean, I, I don't mean it's... Playtime. No, I understand, I understand. I mean, um, fiction and film and everything doesn't need to be a documentary. Everything doesn't need to be journalism. God, what a dull and grim world it would be if that were true. So I'm all in favor of entertaining, illustrative, uh, made-up stories and paintings and art of all kinds. But that's over here. And, and again... Does reality seep into fiction and life experiences inform fiction? Of course, of course, of course. It's when, and again, this is another new condition that is has been enabled by technology, when fictions, on the one hand, become so immersive, as they do in video gaming, right. as they will and do in virtual reality and then augmented reality, that becomes a different kind, and maybe I'm just an old fogey, like, reacting against the new, <laughs> could be, but the, the, the immersive nature of those experiences and, the, the, and therefore the blurring of what's real and what's not. Listen, my, my heart is beating, my, <laughs> my hormones are pumping as though this guy is really shooting at me, which, I don't know, doesn't happen when you read a novel or watch as much when you watch a movie. So that's a, that's a new thing. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if we get. I wonder if we get inured to each of those forms kind of progressively. Such, you know, like I, certainly there were people griping when uh, about novels, you know, back in the day. Like, oh, totally. th that little girl is totally disconnected from right, reality. Right, right, right. And like, movie and movies, <laughs> movies. The, the the cinematic experience uh, that's only a hundred years old, a little over hundred years old, was this was this bizarre, mind-boggling. <laughs> right. uh, uh, thing that uh, that we we we've lost sight of how crazy that was, and so maybe maybe yes, we will become inured to, you know, Obi Wan Kenobi sitting here with us and talking <laughs> to us in augmented reality in five years, and it is interesting to me, and I don't know exactly how it connects, but it doesn't seem like an entire coincidence to me that, as what I call fantasy land in all these real the merger of the real world with all kinds of untruths and wishful beliefs and fantasies, as that has has been come to peak fantasy land, the, the fantasy fiction, hmm. which again, I got nothing against, um, has also s become bigger than it has ever been in the culture industry, whether it's That's right. the, the Tolkien movies, Game of Thrones, Fifty Shades of Grey, on and on and on. Fantasy, uh, as opposed to some version of realism, or, or even science fiction, for that matter, is so huge and dominant. Now, that just may be a coincidence. I'm inclined to think it's not a coincidence. You know, like play and role play have yes. become much more okay for grown-ups. Well, well I, again, it's a tiny thing, not even almost worth mentioning in the same breath as climate change and I. <laughs> right, 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 right. But when I was young, grown-ups didn't dress up on Halloween. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and it's, it's it's one it's 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 data point number five hundred and ninety-seven on the ranked list. All right. But, but 
Yeah, I mean, on the night of SantaCon, do those people believe they're Santa? No, not most of them. Okay. But, but the, the, it's just one more little blurring of, <laughs> of, of, of role play and play acting. And again, much of it's lovely. And I love my fake 19th century Brooklyn neighborhood and with its, <laughs> with its fake early 20th century bar that I can go to. I, you know, so it's not like I'm immune to the pleasures, but... Seems of a piece. It seems of a piece. Going yeah. On. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So now uh, we have been recording for 50 minutes, but you know we've got you out of here at 12:30. Do you okay. have 10 more minutes? Or? Uh, let me see what I got. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. So let's see what the second one that they have for us is. Uh, yeah, I think we'll do Neil deGrasse Tyson, and it's called "The Best Tactic for Science ed Education: Leverage the Power of Pop Culture." I guess I'm lucky that my chosen profession is astrophysics because unlike so many other fields of study, especially academic fields of study, in my field we have a essentially completely transparent lexicon. So I don't have to translate anything, hardly anything. If I show you a photograph of the sun and you see spots on the sun. You say, what do you call those? And I say, we call them sunspots. <laughs> I show you a picture of Jupiter. Oh, there's that red spot in the southern hemisphere of Jupiter. What do you call that? We call that Jupiter's red spot. There's this place where you fall in and you don't come out and light doesn't escape. What do you guys call that? Black hole. So I don't see myself translating anything. I don't have to. I celebrate discovery using all the language that is fundamental to my field. And what it means is to the person listening that they don't have to slog through, navigate through vocabulary to gain access to the interesting idea that's sitting on the other side of it. So uh, let's take biology for example, and they're trying. They discovered deoxyribonucleic acid. Now, if you don't know biology, these are just syllables coming out of your mouth. Well, what is it? Well, it encodes the identity of life, and it's in the shape of a double helix. So fortunately, double helix, that ha that's a word, and there's nothing else really that's a double helix. So that's kind of a translated term for deoxyribonucleic acid. But notice you spend all this time just getting through the word before you get to an understanding or a conversation about what it does and how it does it and why. So I'm lucky that my field does not have this lexicon challenge. So what's interesting there, I think, is that Tyson, in the context of what we've been talking about, is that Tyson is talking about hanging the reality of science on the fantasy of pop culture, yeah. right? Using fantasy as a vehicle to teach reality. Yeah. yeah. No, and, and again, not to be Debbie Downer here, but it's like, I see the bad side. I see people in, in all kinds of alternative woo-woo science hanging their fantasies on the armature of actual science. I can't tell you how often people who believe in mind reading and mental healing and mystical energies and blah 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 refer to quantum physics. Whatever they mean was, by quantum physics. There's something that came up in um, in a recent book of physics I read. There was a reference to Deepak Chopra and how 
Chopra is using the basic idea of quantum indeterminacy to suggest that we create all of reality and have the power to shape it with Correct. our minds. Correct. Know? And he's not the only one. That, that, yeah. is a, yeah. it, that is a tenet of New Age thinking and belief that has developed over the last half century. No, that's absolutely true. And, they, and, and most crudely, it becomes, well, like, if this nutty thing where these two subatomic particles can somehow communicate with each other over a distance is true, then anything I believe is true. That's the problem with pop culture, as Professor Tyson defines it, is that it works both ways. Yeah, well, and then, and then the question becomes, like, what is the way to educate people about the things that we know, especially when some of the things that we know are so far out that in trying to grasp them without an, a real underpinning of, say, calculus, you end up with Deepak Chopra. Right. Know? No, exactly. Because, and, and he makes an interesting point to that in that way, that it is easier, if you're talking about planets and stars and physical space, uh, astrobiology, astrophysics, to, to, to deal with words that people understand. He makes a very good point there, as opposed to uh, string theory. What, what do you mean string? Even though there's a, there's a physical analogy embedded in the idea of string theory, you tell me what they mean by strings. Eh, it's, it's, not, it's not easy, and therefore it is open to all kinds of vulgarization and misinterpretation, as it has been, I mean, since Einstein called it relativity. And then Heisenberg created the uncertainty principle. Those ideas, those brilliant right. physicists, brilliant ideas, became vulgarized and misunderstood in the popular culture as meaning anything goes, all reality, no reality is real. Uh, you can't be sure of anything. Uh, you know, it's it, it's really problematic. And where I'm going, and and it's where I'm going with this, in a sense, is that like we, you know. An egalitarian American, it is an egalitarian American notion that every, everything should be accessible to everyone. And even the show that, you know, that you're on right now, where we talk about big ideas in a way that is hopefully popularly accessible, presumes that there is a way in, right. you know, say, to DNA through a the concept of the double helix. Right. Yeah, and so, but I wonder whether, in fact, in fact, that's not true. And in fact, you know, by by popularizing many of the big ideas that are popularized through our various media, we actually create, we unleash some of these fantastical that, demons. That's like, the problem. I mean, you know, you know uh, <laughs> my, my, as I keep saying, motherhood and apple pie. Yeah. Democracy. Who doesn't like democracy? Tolerance. Who doesn't like tolerance? But as with all things, as with all things, there are excesses, and we may be at a place where our culture and these, and these fixed beliefs that we take to, to extremes sometimes uh, come into conflict with other fundamental needs about how as a society we can operate if we don't basically share some, ba just agree on the contours of reality. Right, and well, and big concepts I guess can be can also be used kind of in good faith and in bad faith, you know, like the concept of democracy, yes. the concept or of no faith. equality, or exactly. yeah, right, and, and selectively. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, the people, who, a lot of people who complain about PC, talk to me when I when I say unkind things about their deeply held beliefs if they're going to be against <laughs> PC at right. that point, you know. Right. So so we are all uh, selective and and or take. Libertarianism. I have some libertarian tendencies, but 
let's talk to Republican libertarians about you know drugs and sexual identity and sexual practice and atheism and all the things that true pure libertarianism should uh, allow if not celebrate and and so everybody is is yeah. selective about what they pick and no and it is a real I mean here we are a democracy we are about liberty life liberty pursuit of happiness but is it not possible and I don't have a solution and it isn't a law that liberty and the pursuit of happiness can be uh, too much of a good thing I think I'm gonna leave it there okay Kurt Anderson thank you so much for being on think again this was great my pleasure And that wraps up this week's episode of Think Again. If you are liking what you're hearing, if you're new to the show or if you've been with us for a while, do me a favor and spread the word. Tell other people about it. Some of you are already doing that already and I really appreciate it. And if you want to join our online conversation and you're on Facebook, go to Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Just search for that in Facebook and you can find our group and request to join it and I'll approve you in. Lots of interesting conversation going on there uh, about the ideas on this show and things that people are reading and more. So please join us. Mother's Day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.